Good morning. Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Going, going, and finally, on Thursday, gone. And to you, the British public, I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. Them's the breaks indeed. And was it perhaps that ever so slightly cavalier attitude to office and even the electorate that ultimately was his undoing? The decline and in the end the very fast fall started on Tuesday just after six. There's breaking news of a dramatic nature across the water in the UK. Sajid Javid uh, has tendered his resignation as Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Uh, he says in the last five minutes, it's been norm- uh, an enormous privilege to serve in this role, but I regret that I can no longer continue in good conscience. And we'll uh, bring you more analysis of that. in uh, just And just a few minutes later. It now seems that their Minister for... Uh, finance, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, he has resigned as well. Reacting to that breaking news, media consultant and former Sky News correspondent, Enda Brady. What do you make of all of this, Enda? Oh, Cormac, it's the night of the blonde knives. That's what they're calling it. So it's the beginning of the end for Boris Johnson, really. I can't see how he can get out of this. He's been caught lying yet again. And, you know, there's been a bullet in the chamber, really, politically, for him for months. And what's happened now is a coordinated approach. I would imagine there would be more resignations tonight into tomorrow. And, you know, his critics have long, even within the party, his critics have been calling on people at senior levels who are all disgusted by the partying, all of the lying, all of the deceit, all of the negative headlines that have gone on for years around this man. I'm talking to you here in rural Oxfordshire. This is Boris Johnson Heartlands, and word is spreading like wildfire. People are very, very happy indeed. I've just had a woman come up to me here and say he was partying, and I respected those rules. What did he expect was going to happen? People, people, I think, will be very, very pleased in the end. Well, there's Brexit, there's Partygate, there are the by-elections, there's access granted because of uh, positions and so on. He could explain his way to some degree out of the by-election results, or try to, but when it, when it comes to explaining appointments despite sexual misconduct and, and briefings about, uh, it, it's really, it, you reckon it's game up here? Look, I, I think it's certainly the beginning of the end. People have had enough. Enough, maybe. But would our Boris do the decent thing and go quietly? Ah, uh, no. He was rummaging in the drinks cabinet for a shot of that blue liqueur you bought on your holidays in Greece. The party wasn't over yet. Having known this guy since, I think I first covered him in this area in 1999. Not one shred of fibre in this man's body will ever, ever, ever resign. And they're going to have to prize him out by the fingernails clinging to the doorframe of number 10. Have you no homes to go to? But that was a view echoed on Morning Ireland. Here's Gavin with the headlines on Wednesday. On the brink, the Times, Guardian and Financial Times hanging by a thread, the Daily Telegraph, last chance saloon on the sun. Can even Boris the greased piglet wriggle out of this, the Daily Mail? Boris fights on the Express. But as Gavin pointed out, this wasn't Boris's first time in a bit of a jam. And those around him surely knew very well the man they had elected. He put this to Simon Cooper, author of Chums, how a tiny cast of Oxford Tories took over the UK. 
Simon, Conservatives were well aware of the man they chose and backed as their leader. He hasn't changed, so why have they? Yeah, it's very odd because, and to those of us who were critical of Boris Johnson from the beginning, everything that we see about him is everything that we know. He's not competent. He's never been interested in running things. He's a, a verbal performer, a comedic performer, not a manager of anything. He's not honest. He has a long record of lying uh, from when he was sacked from his first job, job at the Times for making up quotes. And um, he doesn't have an inner core. There's nothing he believes in. I mean, um, you know, famously, he had to write two columns to decide whether he was for Brexit or against it. So everything that we're seeing now, the kind of using government just as a vehicle, he hopes one day to get a statue for himself, is what we knew. Ooh, I think it's fair to say not a lot of love for Prime Minister Johnson on the airwaves over the last few days. Or indeed praise for the people around him. Here's former Labour advisor Alistair Campbell with Clare. He deliberately appointed a cabinet full of third and fourth rate people. I mean, Nadine Dorry, Suella Braverman, Dominic Raab. You know, these people wouldn't have got a job carrying Mrs Thatcher's handbag for her. They wouldn't have got a job polishing John Major's shoes. I mean, they're just second rate people. And so the, the, the idea that these people are ever going to be cabinet ministers again once Johnson's gone, so they're, cl- they're clinging on with him. Mm-hmm. And if the Conservative Party had any sense, they'd sweep the lot of them out, they'd get a leader from the backbenches and they'd try to rebuild. Um, but, you know, what really gets my goat is, is they, they seem to underestimate the damage this is doing to the country literally right around the world. Oh my, but of course, he is a Labour man, so hardly likely to be blowing a trumpet for the Conservatives. And supporters of Boris Johnson would say that he did indeed get Brexit done and was the fastest on the vaccination rollout. However, even Conservatives of the bluest hue, like MP Andrew Bridgen, were critical of their Prime Minister. Boris Johnson needs to appreciate the the game's up, the party's over, uh, for the good of the country, for the good of our Parliament. Um, and for the good of the Conservative Party. He needs to go with a modicum of decency now, uh, or we will have to throw him out. Um, the, the country, our country deserves better than we've had. Our Parliament deserves better, and the Conservative Party deserves better than this. And that was just after 10 on Wednesday morning. Hop, skip, and jump to around about 11.30, and those resignations are just tumbling in. Now back to what's been happening in Downing Street. More Conservative MPs this morning going public with their criticism of their Prime Minister. The British Education Select Committee Chair MP Robert Halfon, who previously said he would give Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt, has called on him to resign. The MP Lee Anderson says Johnson should go. The Minister for School Standards Robin Walker has resigned, as has John Glenn, who we mentioned earlier, and Felicity Buchan. So although it's very difficult to keep a run tally in the past day. It would appear to be about 15 resignations from the Conservative government at this stage. I'm joined now. Boris, not going. Nowhere. You can't make me. Does the Prime Minister think there are any circumstances in which he should resign? <laughs> uh, I think, I, Mr Speaker, I clearly, if the uh, if there were circumstances in which I felt it was uh, impossible for the government to go on and discharge uh, the mandate uh, that we've been given, 
uh, or if I felt, for instance, that we were being frustrated in our desire to support the Ukrainian people, uh, or, or over some major point, uh, then I would. But, but frankly, Mr Speaker, the job of a Prime Minister in difficult circumstances when he's been handed a colossal mandate is to keep going, and that's what I'm going to do. Except you're not. Because despite all the bellowing and the bluster, by Thursday morning it really was all over. Finally, just after midday, Boris Johnson stood outside at number 10 to give his resignation speech. And in the last few days I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, even in mid-term after quite a few months of pretty relentless sledging and when the economic scene is so difficult domestically and internationally. And I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments. And of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and and projects myself. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times. And it was all over. Or was it? Because then speculation began as to just when the door of number 10 would actually definitively shut behind him because he was going to stay on as a caretaker Prime Minister. Claire put this to George Parker, political editor of the Financial Times. So this question about whether he can stay on, he doesn't want to leave and he doesn't have to. There's no way for those who want to get him out straight away to get him out. That's correct. The only way that the Conservative Party could get him out more quickly would be to choose a leader, new leader more quickly. Um, but at the moment, they seem resigned to the fact that this whole process probably will take around eight weeks. So that's two weeks for the Tory MPs to whittle down what's going to be an enormous cast list of potential candidates down to two. Then those two names go forward to the party membership in the country. There have to be a series of hustings around the country. That will take a couple of months. So the idea is that a new Conservative leader and therefore a new Prime Minister will be in place by the time the House of Commons returns on September the 5th. So that means Boris Johnson, yes, stays in number 10 for two months. But the Tory party and the country and the Labour party and everyone else will keep a very close close eye on him to make sure he doesn't do anything that would be regarded as reckless or, you know, beyond the non-existent mandate which he, which he now has. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. We just had our own Minister for Foreign Affairs on just before we uh, began speaking to you and, and he more or less said the same, that he expects not very much to happen during this caretaker period. No, I think the, the basically Boris Johnson told his quickly assembled new cabinet, some dubbed the IKEA cabinet by some, that um, it's that they would they were there just to sort of mind the shop basically, uh, and they weren't expected to deviate from existing government policy or to announce new proposals. What that does mean, though, in practice, in terms of, for example, the Northern Ireland Protocol, is that the legislation that's already been agreed by the, the cabinet and is already going through Parliament, things like that, will continue as planned. But bear in mind, you know, for a lot of this period, the next eight weeks, Parliament will be in recess, MPs will be back in their constituencies or on the beach. Very little normally happens during that period anyway. So the potential for Boris Johnson to cause a lot of trouble is fairly limited. I suspect one of the things he'll be focused on is this wedding party at Chequers at the end of the month and um, probably sorting out his post-political life and jobs. 
And of course, as George Parker mentioned, agreement and consensus on the Northern Ireland Protocol is vital for everyone on this island. So whoever sits at the desk in number 10 has an enormous impact on life here. On Wednesday, Sarah spoke to MP and STLP leader Colm Eastwood. Uh, what does this all mean, Colm, for Ireland and, and Northern Ireland particularly? Because that really is why we have been reporting on it at such length today, because this really matters for this country and, and, and what happens next. It does. And like, as I said, Johnson in particular has used... Uh, Northern Ireland and the issues around the protocol and Brexit as a as a political football to shore up support with the right wing of the Tory party. Now, I, I don't want any Tory Prime Minister, but if if there's somebody at least half sensible, uh, could, couldn't be any worse than, uh, than Johnson. Uh, you might be able to reset the relationship a bit with the European Union, have a grown-up conversation about the issues around the protocol and how we resolve it. There, there are clearly ways in which we can do all of that. I mean, Europe has already been very flexible, but they have been met with just uh, intransigence and, and unilateral action from the British government because, as I say, Boris has been using this issue to shore up his support with the ERG. So I, I think if we can, if there's anything positive can come out of any of this is that you may be able to see somebody a bit more moderate and sensible, having a, you know, a normal conversation with, with, with the European Union and we can begin to resolve some of those issues. And for mm-hmm. us, it's the most important thing uh, going because Brexit has created so much harm uh, in, our, in our politics and our economy. And while matters here and the protocol may be the most important thing for us, how much does it matter to potential candidates? On the news at one, the view of former Deputy British Prime Minister Sir David Liddington. I think some candidates for leadership are almost certain to want to strike poses and, and demonstrate how they are standing up for you know what they define as a UK national interest yeah. and the sovereignty of the UK, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I hope that whoever is elected at the end of the day is going to um, actually take a so- make a sober assessment of the interests of the people of the United Kingdom, including the people of all traditions on, on Northern Ireland, and find a way to defuse these tensions that, that I, I do really do fear are getting risk getting dangerously out of hand and leading to a complete breakdown yeah. in the practical but, operation of the 1998 agreement. But that's interesting because you, you, you do suggest there's a possibility that the Northern Ireland Protocol could become an issue in the leadership election campaign. I do, I, yes, I don't think a central one. Um, I, I think that is going to be much less important than uh, a, a, a than who mm. can demonstrate that they could, they would actually be an effective prime minister, and in particular uh, have a, have a co- coherent and believable answer to the economic challenges that mm. the UK is facing. It are very grave indeed. Yep. I think that above all is what MPs and party members will look for. But mm. some some will want to try to. To appeal to what they will have identified as a right-wing sort of quite English nationalist element right, yeah. in uh, Conservative Party membership, and they'll, 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 they'll pitch a message to them. So all eyes on the successor. And while every true blue Tory is looking in the mirror, throwing back their shoulders and thinking, "Yeah, I think I could," who would we like to see in number ten? Here's RTE's Fiona Mitchell. Come here to me from an Irish perspective, and you've had the privilege of covering UK politics, politics right through the Brexit saga. Um, but from an Irish point of view as well, do you think there Dublin would prefer a certain candidate over another? Well, I think the Irish government will be watching this, Cormac, to see who they get. If they got somebody who is 
a, a, a Brexiteer uh, like Liz Truss or Steve Baker. Now, I, I say Liz Truss, a Brexiteer. She, in fact, was on the Remain side in the referendum, but she has um, become uh, fulsome in her support of Brexit now. And, of course, it was her that introduced, it, introduced the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill in recent weeks, and that's seen very much... Um, that was seen as, as really her initial play for support from the Brexit side of the party if a leadership contest was to open up, which everybody knew that it would um, in short order. So somebody like Liz Truss, I suspect, would worry Dublin. Um, indeed, somebody like Steve Baker would worry Dublin. Somebody who is uh, a very staunch in their support of Brexit and wants to show that to the Brexiteer side of the Conservative Party. They might be hoping for somebody who would be seen as a tad more middle of the road, somebody like Ben Wallace or Tom Tugendhat, or indeed Jeremy Hunt, um, seen often as the um, the sensible or the boring option. But as somebody said to me today, we could probably use a little bit of boring in British politics right <laughs> now. <laughs> so, <laughs> Mr T would be boring after this if he were to be uh, leader of the Conservative Party. And there we shall leave it. What a week. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Thursday, a woman whose voice sounds like melted chocolate. You know, I've been gifted with this flexible instrument, mm-hmm. a throat for hire, and um, it's given me pleasure and money, yeah. and uh, I like surprising people, and I'm still doing it. I'm, I'm still doing uh, uh, voiceovers, not as many as I used to, but um, my favourite one at the moment is a suppository, as I think you may know. <laughs> I'm happy to say I'm not that familiar with that, with that <laughs> side of it, but I have no doubt you are just the person for the job, Miriam. <laughs> the Caramel Bunny, also known as Miriam Margulies, and all praise the radio for this particular interview. You love radio. Radio was your your thing initially in, when you joined the BBC in 1963 and voiceovers and characters and accents and so forth. Um, this is, you have a kind of a, a good relationship with the radio world. I love radio. It's what I was brought up on because I, I matured before television happened and I think I will end in radio because it's a very comfortable medium and I think it's a superior medium because it goes right into the ear of the person that is listening and you can conjure up Mm. with a voice Mm. all kinds of glories and it goes straight unfiltered into the listener's ear. Whereas television has got all kinds of distractions and things laid on top of, of the of the message of the story. I I think that uh, radio is a superior medium, much more intimate, more direct, and equally sensational. And if people have got nice voices, Mm -hmm. as you and I have, we can can pleasure people who are listening. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But Margolis was talking to Ryan on foot of her autobiography, This Much Is True. And they talked about her coming out to her mother, something she now almost regrets, stage fright, she vomits, and the importance of her Jewish identity. Can I ask you about your Jewishness and the sense that you, you, you say every day of my adult life I've thought about uh, and of the Holocaust. Very intense thing to be thinking about, of course. But every day? Yes, that is true. I don't think it's the same for people who aren't Jewish. But when you're born Jewish, Mm. you 
you live with the knowledge that people wanted to kill you for no other reason than that you were a Jew. And that is, you know, it's just not acceptable. I can't deal with that information. It's just too scary. And it's affected me all my life. And, you know, every time I go to a train station or every time I get in the shower, which is every day, by the way, I think about those other showers, Do the you? showers of Auschwitz, the showers of Treblinka. And I realise that people died in their millions and we don't even know their names. And that's why I love doing genealogy. I, mm. I've discovered so many things about my family and so many people that were killed that I didn't even know because they mustn't have died in vain. They mustn't die anonymously. They must be known and the crimes must be known mm. and paid for. And I would hunt out every last Nazi. If you killed people the way they, those killers killed, you must be brought to justice. You went to Auschwitz five years ago. What sort of impact did that have on you? A very sombre impact. It's a place where you understand the mechanics of the Nazi regime. You see how people were processed from building to building and to the gas chambers, which are surprisingly small. And, of course, they've been scrubbed out. So all the fingernails and the blood and the screams are no longer there. But you know that this happened. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important everybody should go yes. just to be remembering. And Margulies also talked about being bullied, quite badly bullied, by the Monty Python gang. They were cruel, minor public schoolboys. They didn't like this fat, pushy little Jew. And they sent me to Coventry during the uh, double take, the 1962 Footlights Review. And it caused me great pain. And I know I should have got over it now. It's 60 years ago. I haven't. I mean, sent to Coventry. I haven't heard that expression for some time. But for people who don't know what it means, it, you were ostracised. Yes, it was. It mean, when I was doing the show, you know, we would do our sketches together. And the minute I got off the stage, I didn't exist. They looked through me. They didn't speak to me. Nobody spoke to me. How can I forget that? I, I wept night after night. Oh, no. I was in, in pain and, and sad and couldn't understand it. I didn't realise that it was their insane competition. The, the competitive spirit there was was destructive. But that was the root of it all. I wasn't that much better than they were. In fact, I wasn't better. I was as good. Let's put it like that. I'll, yes. I'll lay claim to that. I was just as funny when I was that age as they were. I think that all of them were geniuses. I do think that. Yes. But they don't have the right to treat me that way. And now I'm going to tell them so. Well, there you are. And as the interview wound to a close, this... I saw you recently eating an onion. I nearly got sick in my own bucket. Um, <laughs> you love your onions, Miriam? Oh, I do. I love all the spicy things. You know, radishes. A good radish does a girl a good. But just a raw. You took an onion in your hand and ate it like an apple. I was going, is she OK? What's happening? What? <laughs> <laughs> it just looked so awful. But you were chomping away. Happy as Larry. But don't you like onions? Well, not like eating them like an apple. I'm sorry, oh, I can't. I can't darling, you're, never, you're not tried it, that's why. <laughs> Just try it. You'll try it sometime, it. would you, for God's sake. Okay. you love it. I won't. <laughs> Next time you're over here, I promise you, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> 
it does sound pretty yuck in fairness that was the very delightful Miriam Margulies with Ryan on Liveline sometimes it's hard to be a woman calls from women who had been forced to give up work because they got married and far from being a historical problem the repercussions of the marriage bar are being felt today with women getting by without pensions or benefits here's Trassa I sat a competitive exam and uh, my husband did the same thing and the the difference was that my husband was allowed to go ahead and get promotion and all that and I was told to go and get lost and I think it was the most sexist law that you could think of it, it set me in a certain position and I had to go along with it and another thing that I hated about it people would say to you are you working and I'd have to say I'm not because I got no pay for what I did and I worked from 7 o'clock in the morning till about 9 o'clock at night. And I fed my six children three times a day and my mother. And I did all the necessary. I had a good life and I was very happy. But uh, I think it's terrible that because I was a woman, I wasn't fit to go ahead and carry on in a career. I'm just furious that even up to this stage, I can't get this PRSI that's being given out. And there were more calls from women. And you can hear, even after all these years, how the injustice still rankles. Here's Briga. She joined the civil service, Posts and Telegraphs, 1967. Going back to the original, when you, when you had to leave... Like was that something that was annoying to you, or just accepted and it oh, wasn't? No. You, well, you, you could not I, question it. Sure, I accepted. How would you fight the state? Like, but oh no, I was always a fairly up, <laughs> upright person about entitlements and all the rest. But but um, oh no, I was annoyed at having to leave. But like, I felt there was another world out there, and I had been, as I say, well trained, and I was good at my job, and I didn't feel that I would have trouble. But. but this and as you say, but now you are you are annoyed because you see, you know what was taken from you in terms of your continuous employment record. Oh, I was aware, Katie. Like even when I retired at that stage, I knew I wasn't going to get a pension, and that's why I I worked as much as I could. Like yeah. I applied, I applied for the pension, but I was refused. I was told I hadn't enough A one contributions, even though I continuously signed for credits. I see, I think uh, young women or even middle-aged women actually now uh, would hear this story and just think it just sounds so extraordinary that you oh, could tell a woman that yeah. I'm sorry you n- you got married last week so you are now not entitled to oh, paid no. employment in the civil no, service. No, no, it's it's oh, no, they extraordinary. Don't believe it. I'm 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 sure I've people's ears worn out telling the story <laughs> and people will stand up and argue with you and I said. There's no argument. I said, I don't get anything, even if I could get a few bob of my own. But, like, times are hard. Myself and my husband were existing on his pension. And this might stop you in your tracks, because when you got married, your PPS number changed. I went to the tax office in Hawkins Street after I got married to get my, to register up my tax and the change of name. And I looked and I said to her, I said, this isn't my PPS number. It's a big, long number. I still remember it. 1985, blah, blah, blah. I said, that's not. 
that's your that's your number now, she said. You're only half a person. <laughs> wow. And more women phoned Katie and told their stories. Stories that were simply shocking and also sometimes quite sad with opportunities lost and talents left unexplored. This is Eileen. Because it was a wonderful job and I was in the local appointments commission which was marvellous. And uh, it was so interesting. We used to appoint um, um, chairs of surgery to Galway and wonderful things like that. And I'm sure you had a whole social life built around work. And oh, absolutely. And, you're, you, you know, when you got married, you found yourself in a house and no companions, no interaction. I mean, it wasn't the way it is nowadays. You, you found yourself very isolated. Talking to the wall as the... <laughs> <laughs> I loved my job. It gave me a sense of identity and a civil service job was quite a job in those days. That was Monday and on Tuesday the focus turned to financial institutions. Here are the stories of two women, both called Mary. In 1979, the first Mary, just married, had gone to her credit union for a loan. I went into the credit, local credit union to get a loan to build a kitchen, to put a kitchen in. And I would have done a lot of business with them and I had savings there. So the lady at the desk says to me, yeah, that's no problem, Mary. And then she turned around and said, but you need to get your husband in here to sign. I said, my husband? Oh, I said, sorry, no, 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 I'm still working because that time... You well, this was post, taken, yeah, this is after the marriage bar was lifted. So you, were, you had a choice of taking your marriage gratuity and, and uh, I'm working for two years and then leaving or forfeiting it. She decided to stay on. So I thought she didn't understand. I said, no, 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 I'm staying on, I'm staying on. So I have my own money. I'll be able to pay back the loan. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, you're married now, so you need your husband to sign sign your loans. I said, what? She, she, she looked at me and said, what? I went, what? Are you serious? And she said, yes. My God. So anyway, I went, I signed it, and I jumped out anyway, and Thomas, my husband, came in. And he, the lady I know, she lived down the road from us, and she just said to Thomas, well, how is she now? Has she cooled down? <laughs> and they, he, she said, he said, no, no, she hasn't. Because it was my first time to experience something like this, that, that I was not allowed to get a loan in my own right. When a month ago, beforehand, I could have got a loan. No problem. Shocking. But that was 1979. But prepare to gasp when you hear just how recently this incident took place. Mary went to her local building society to lodge a cheque. A cheque made out entirely and solely to her. And at that time you lodged a cheque and they took the details from you and it was a little book you got, a record book. So it took a few days to update that. So when I went back in, there was my husband's name down as the very as the first uh, signatory and I was second. And then he had set it up in such a way that I needed my husband's signatory to um, also withdraw any monies on that account. So I actually challenged him, but he just said, no, that's the way. And this was in 1991. In 1991? 1991. Just leaving a little pause so you can lift your jaw off the floor. 1991, eh? Now, if you're a young woman out there, perhaps even born in that year, few, but the debt owed to previous generations cannot be underestimated. I work with young women now and they cannot believe 
when I tell them some of, you know, the, the benefits we had or not had and our working conditions and that. And they're just looking and saying, like, you know, this wouldn't happen to me. Uh, but I keep saying, well, we broke the mould for you. This is what you have as a result of all these brave women out there who fought for all our rights over the years. What did they say? OK, boomer. <laughs> And they don't say very much, you know, they just look in shock, you know. They can't comprehend it. You're right, Katie, they can't comprehend it. Oh yeah, live line with Katie. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On drive time, <clears throat> marital hatred. An item prompted by an assessment from Gwyneth Paltrow's therapist. Yeah, there's, there's an interesting quote from him. He says, real marriage comes the day you realise this person, your spouse, is exquisitely designed to stick the burning spear into your eyeball. <laughs> Sorry. Now, burning spears are one thing, but it seemed bickering was par for the course and perfectly normal. Just as well, given someone's hypothetical towel situation. Oh, and spare a thought for the poor psychotherapist Helen Vaughan, sandwiched on the couch between the two. Where is criticism okay? Like, for example, if you were living with somebody who always put the towels to dry on radiators, even though the radiators aren't on because it's the summertime, so you're really just leaving damp towels around the place. And always does Or they does put them this. on the floor or on the bed. Or, Worse, yeah, in a, in a massive bed. big pile where they just can't dry like that because they're damp towels. Oh, I'm going to stand up for, <laughs> for Sarah's a, husband this here. This is a hypothetical. I, 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 put, I, and he obviously, puts them on the radiator because they dry, they're lifted up. They're, no, n- n- well, not if they're folded over four times you're, and then put on the radiator. You're controlling, Alan, isn't you? <laughs> I, I'm trying to. To dry the towels is all I'm trying to do. So, like, you know, there has to be a bit of criticism around that, doesn't there? Or, or polite But it doesn't requests. have to be criticism. Okay, so tell me. That's tell polite me. Go request. On. So yeah, it's, okay. it's about how you communicate. And there's a way of using what we call I statements. So I feel this, like I feel ignored when you hang the towels on the radiator and you don't put them, I don't know, where do you want them to put them? You don't put them in the wash. You don't put them on the heated towel rail, which is mm. what it's for you know, that I feel ignored when that happens. So you're saying how it impacts you rather than you're a dirty pig and you should put your towels in the wash when you're finished with them. Sure. Right. You see the difference there between taking ownership of your feelings or pointing the finger at somebody else. Okay, so you say and it once, two- right? And then the following week, <laughs> you come down the stairs and there's the towels. But maybe he disagrees, sure. No, I, this is... How, w- and, and what you're doing there, actually, is Im- imposing your will on somebody who's has his own free oh, I will. I didn't realise your psychotherapy she's controlling she's even trying to do it <laughs> well here. it might be your norm versus his norm and that's exactly. what a lot of us bring into relationships okay, so the this norms is, this from is our what family I'm asking. Okay. maybe his family all put the towels <laughs> and that's they love it I think she should apologise actually this evening to him Cormac and Sarah scraps both international and domestic Theatre maker Philip McMahon joined Derville MacDonald on Sunday. His company, This Is Pop Baby, is 15 years old and has ripped up the playbook with productions like Alice in Funderland and Riot. He talked about the upside of not fitting in. When you feel like an outsider, um, you know, I was born in London to Irish parents, moved to Ireland when I was 10. So I arrived with an English accent, so I was an outsider. Realised very early that I was queer and so then you're an outsider and then, you know, so I was like, where do I fit in? So first of all, theatre was my tribe. And then as that developed, some amazing leaders in the queer community, the Panties and the Nile Sweeney's of the world became huge figureheads for me and they taught me a lot about my own culture and my own culture was queer culture, right? So um, 
and I think that some, sometimes we worry that the young'uns um, <laughs> are not kind of getting their, their Judy Garland schooling. But that was very important for me, shaping who I was and telling the stories that I want to tell. And I suppose the aesthetic, anybody that comes to my show sees that massive glittering aesthetic. Oh, we do like a massive glittering aesthetic. But a life in theatre, not necessarily on the cards. Looking yes. back at your life um, in theatre, not quite unschooled or unpracticed, but it wasn't predestined that you were going to commit your life to a life in theatre and, and writing all these big conversations. No, no, not at all. And of course, you reflect on these. Like we used to be called the wild childs of Irish theatre, right? And now, you know, in the <laughs> early 40s, you're like, what am I now? Um, but, you know, I'm the, not... The from, adolescence, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not from a theatre family. Like, I don't think I had ever seen a play until I had joined youth theatre. And it was just, it was it was a chance, really, that myself and a friend, we had gone into the Youth Information Centre on Sackville Place, which is now a Moxie Hotel. And uh, we said, we're bored. We're looking for something to do. We were two kids from Finglas who had got the bus mm-hmm. into town. And they said, there's a youth theatre on Gardner Street, Dublin Youth Theatre, go and knock on the door. And we did. And we were like, what is theatre? And we'd never been inside one. But they took us in. And under the guidance of amazing people like Veronica Coburn from Barabbas and Madeleine Boughton and Valerie Bastani, these amazing women who were who were instilling creativity in us that we didn't know or unlocking creativity in us that we didn't know that we had. And so this kind of, over the years, this deep passion and appreciation for theatre, for art. And, you know, it wasn't honed in university. It was honed backstage at the Abbey and it was honed hanging out at theatre bars and, and just really wanting to crack it, but always feeling in some way, I don't want to use the word elite because it's it's cliched, right? But feeling locked out of... Locked like, out of it, feeling lo- an outsider. And so we kind of yeah. thought, well, we'll make our own party. But when it comes to access to theatre, he wasn't holding back. For theatres all over the country, if what's on your stage is not reflecting what's in your town or city, you're doing it wrong. And theatre can be very slow. And so you can say, oh, well, there's a there's amazing, you know, mix of people who are training right now or whatever. But our stages have to reflect our communities. So, you know, we want to hear traveller voices and we want to hear black voices and we want to hear queer voices and we want to hear trans voices and everyone in between and beyond whatever, you know. And so. So, yeah, we have to ask ourselves the question, A, who's in power? And then what are, what's your access point to the arts? If you're a young kid, you know, if you're one of my nephews from Finglas, what is their access point to the arts? Are we creating those access points? Are we kicking down the barriers? And we have to. It was very important for me, for the people that did it for me. And so, you know, I hope I'm being part of the solution for that. Philip McMahon with Derville. But a musician who knew from the get-go that she was destined for big things... Get your glitter on for Kira Mary Alice Thompson, who we will mostly know as CMAT. Her debut album, If My Wife Knew I'd Be Dead, went to number one and now she's released a deluxe version. All of this, of course, written in the stars. What about then, and I know this is probably a line that has come up in, in more than one interview for you, when you said yourself, I always just assumed I was going to be a pop star. How real How real a statement was that? How much cover-up was there? Or was it, you know, just a genuine ambition and, and want and need? I think when I was a child, I really did just always assume that I was going to be a pop star. 
because I just really wanted to be one and I really, really loved Samantha Mumba. When I was five years old, you couldn't tell me there was a better person on the whole planet. I thought she was basically the Pope. I was like, this is, <laughs> this is the woman. This is the woman for me. So the first place I would have grown up would have more or less been like Dublin 15. So I, I lived in a place called Little Pace in Clonny until I was about 10, which is near Blanchardstown. And obviously there is an area pop star in sight there. Like we're, you know, my mom's a, like a carer and all my family are nurses and stuff. Like we're pretty normal people. You know, there's not really any musicians or performers or anything like that in my mm. family. And I didn't meet anyone who played the guitar until I was like 12. And still from like the age of five, I was like, yeah, but I'm going to be a pop star. <laughs> and, and what was the reaction at home to that? You know, was it... Yeah, go for it, Kira. Or was it, huh? Yeah, there she is off again with her little pop star dreams. Well, see, this this line of question always causes an argument in my family <laughs> because my my sisters and my mother love to think that they were my number one supporters from day one. And they love to be like, oh, we supported her from day one. She was so brilliant. And, you know, we bought her a guitar. We did this and that and the other. But I have a distinct memory of them being like, what are you doing? When he got back to college, what is this? Like I moved in, I moved in with my nanny and granddad to get some peace because they all wouldn't leave me alone about the fact that because I dropped out of college, I got into Trinity, <laughs> brag. Uh, <laughs> I got into Trinity and I dropped out after six months because I had a mental breakdown, and I was just like, yeah, I think I just want to work in the super value and like do music. And she talked about that breakdown and how, as you might imagine, nothing about it was good. Yeah, and how serious was that 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 uh, breakdown, as you call it? Uh, you know, in uh, in college, I mean, oh, I was it was it was fairly bad. Like it was very bad. I just had a complete like, I would say like an utter break from reality. Like where I didn't know who I was, what I was doing. I I heard Phoebe Bridgers say the other day that like she worries about the fact that because she's a musician, um, and a songwriter who has mental health issues that the nature of that means you're glamorizing it, right? Because you're writing a song about feeling mentally unwell and you're putting it into a beautiful song, beautiful melody and all this. Um, and so you're romanticizing it. It's not romantic though. Like I was terrible. I was in bits, like my mm. my skin was falling to pieces and I weighed about seven and a half stone and I just looked terrible and I was really boring and I was really bored. Um, and I just was absolutely bananas. And it's not, you know, it's not fun or cool. Yeah. And actually, the thing that was fun and cool was that when I dropped out, I don't know if it was like a self-protection thing, but I just literally made the decision to like, I'm going to work in a shop. I'm going to spend all my extra time and money on doing music. That was the thing that actually saved my mental health was yeah. just like doing what I wanted to do. And just like, and obviously doing music is really hard. Like it's not easy. You get a lot of setbacks and it's, it's pretty uh, disheartening a lot of the time. Yeah, but she has made some amazing music. And on this new deluxe album, she has reworked four songs. And this one in particular got the special treatment. The main one was Communion because I kind of feel like maybe the song to production translation of Communion on the record was one of the least successful. Like I, because I kind of wrote it as a slow song, but then I wanted it to be up tempo. Yeah, I think the new version is is much more to go back to that Nash- Nashville song that we played at the beginning. It's much more of a country type of style in there, a country sound that you've gone for. That's kind of how I wrote it. I I wrote it like country. I write most things on guitar with about two chords in them, and then I have to <laughs> I have to work it out later on the studio, make it better. Yeah, I just kind of went back to the roots of that song to make it country song, and hopefully it's a bit more successful this time around. Who knows? And after all that, sure we'd have to. Well, that is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.
said the 